been a while. We, uh, we've been blessed with Rob, and um, I, can't, I can't say enough good. He's been such a blessing in so many ways. Um, but his weekly preparation, his discipline, his, his knowledge and understanding, and, and the way he, he brings out truth is, is a blessing to us. So I'm grateful. And uh, sermon prep's hard work. Um, it's uh, it's it's uh, emotionally and mentally taxing. It's not physically hard, but it's mentally hard. Um, I've, so I've got two things I want to talk about this morning with you, and they're kind of uh, they're not really that related. But we have not talked as as a church, or we haven't said anything about the Roe versus Wade decision. I wanted to say a few words about that this morning. Um, and then I have a, a one-point sermon as a bonus on the end. All right, how about that? Um, <laughs> amen. Ralph says amen. It's all good, brother. It's all good. Uh, so um, I, was, I saw a news clip this week, and I just found it ironic in, in the most horrible way. But you know, our president visited Saudi Arabia. He visited Israel, and then he visited Saudi Arabia this week. When he went to Saudi Arabia, one of the agenda items was to at least try to somehow address this this issue of how the Saudi Arabian government uh, literally murdered uh, a journalist who they found inconvenient. This was a couple years ago. This isn't new news. But but the big question was, how are we going to deal with this? What are we going to do? Are we going to hold him to account for this atrocity? Or are we going to let it slide because we need oil right now? Um, and in the, in the exchange that happened, an interesting thing happened. Um, there was a question about, are you going to apologize to this, this crown prince? Are you going to apologize to the family of the person who was murdered? It's pretty much widely assumed he ordered the, the killing, by the way, the crown prince himself. And he smirked. Yeah, because he felt no pressure, no moral pressure, no nothing from, from our representative there, the president. And, and then later, his commentary was, don't impose your values on us, all right? Don't come here and impose your values on us. Now, what values are we talking about? Oh, not murdering and dismembering people. That's the values that we're talking about that he doesn't want to be held to, Right? But as I thought about that, I thought we have abandoned any moral authority we might have had because we as a nation have spent the last 50 years murdering and dismembering 60 million children. How can we go and preach to some crown prince that he shouldn't murder a journalist that he finds inconvenient for him when we have murdered 60 million of our own that we found inconvenient for us? So... And I know this is easy to preach to you because you're the choir, right? Um, and I, and I want to say these things out loud, but I don't, I don't want us to walk away feeling all righteous and beating our chest about how good we are. That is not, that's not the point. But I do want us to think about this as Christianly as we can. So how should we think about this? Well, like Jesus did sometimes with the Pharisees. Let's go back to first principles. Je- Genesis tells us that God created us in his image, male and female. There's so much there, and I don't have time to unpack all of that. Fascinating, 
But one of the most amazing gifts that he granted to us as part of his image is the actual power to create life. Just think about that. The actual power to create life. When you step back and consider how profound this is, it's hard to overestimate and it's hard to overstate how significant this power is. And we have the power, it's almost unlimited to us. We we don't have to expend great effort. Well, some uh, moms might disagree with that. There is a great effort. And my, my daughter's a labor and delivery nurse, so she's aware of what that is, and many of you are aware of that too. But you don't have to study. You don't have to get a degree. You don't have to understand all of the physics and the biology of how it works, right? It doesn't take a great amount of wealth to access this power. It doesn't create, take much preparation to access this power. God built it into our bodies. It is a miracle, yet it's so common we don't even think about it as a miracle. It's a great gift. And then when the little ones are actually born to us, God uses this gift to teach us about himself. Um, For those of us who who are parents, moms and dads, I can tell you when I became a father, I I noticed new emotions and attachments that I didn't even really understand before. But then after being a dad and then reading the scripture, I understand, I think, God a little bit better than I did before. It taught me about him because he feels the things that we feel as parents toward us, the way we feel toward our children. He made us in his image, and he gave us this ability to have children in our own image, which is very scriptural, so that we could partially understand how he feels and what he feels. But like so many of God's gifts, we as a society have failed to value it. And we now value the means of this childbearing, these relationships, this intimacy, as more important than the actual end of it, which is the new life. And in fact, we seek to destroy the new life so that we can play around in trivial ways with with the means. We as a country have demanded the right the right to kill our own children without consequence. And we shamelessly demand to be praised for the courage to do such a thing. In 1973, our highest courts uh, agreed that this was a right, a fundamental right of our country, legalizing and paving the way for the killing of about 60 million babies since then. And last month, our, our Supreme Court reversed itself, which it occasionally does, and said this is not a right. But each state can make their own policy in this area. So we, we can rightly celebrate this step, but we can rightly be subdued. This is, not, this is not really a great moral step, okay? Uh, many states will continue to grow even more radical in their approach to this. Some advocate killing a child right up until the moment of birth. We understand the role of government, God's purpose, and this is from 1 Peter, to punish those who do evil, and praise those who do good. Pretty simple, right? That's the purpose and role of government, fundamentally. So this acknowledgement that we don't have a fundamental right to kill babies is a step in the right direction, but let's not get carried away. It is a step back from the horror of claiming that such a right exists. To ban abortion in some states also does not address the heart that is so cold that it would kill for convenience. It does not address the mercenaries who will continue in the horrific human trafficking in baby body parts. I'm not even exaggerating. You know this is true. 
It does not address the lies to women, that their convenience is more important than the life of their child. And it doesn't help women who are on the edge of this decision and they need help and counseling to decide for life. So we need to keep praying for our country. We need to keep advocating for life, not because we're so good and righteous, because we are not, but because we do value the gift that God has given us. We need to keep supporting ministries like Portico, uh, and we just turned in some baby bottles recently. But they put, the, they put their love into action, right? They're not just making moral speeches. They are acting in real space with, with women who need help and families who need help. They can turn dollars and time into love. And they can help these people to make decisions for life and support babies after they've made this decision. So let's keep praying. Let's keep speaking the truth in love. And let's keep supporting those who treasure God's gift of life. That's what I wanted to say about that. I hope that's helpful. I don't want to be political, um, but this one, this one's big. This one's big. Yeah, sometimes political is moral. I've heard it said, uh, if we don't legislate morality, what are we going to legislate? Right? Because and that's really true, honestly. It's really true. Pick, pick any law. If you take the slogan of, uh, of the pro-choice people and say, well, if you think abortion is wrong, don't have an abortion. Simple, right? If you think abortion is wrong, don't have an abortion. Apply that logic to any law and see how far it goes. It does not go very far. It does not go very far. So that's, that's what I wanted to share with you about that, and I, I hope that was maybe a little bit helpful. There's been some weird, weird things going on in social media where uh, people are criticizing people for not saying anything about Roe versus Wade, as if, well, if you haven't spoken about this, you must not really care, or your, your commitment to, the, to life must be suspect, or, or maybe, maybe you're secretly liberal and you don't really, you're really not on board. Um, I think it's a little more, I, I just don't think that's quite a fair way to put it. I just don't think we've completely reached some kind of victory. A, a reversing Roe v. Wade is, is good, but it's a start. Yeah. So I do have a one-point sermon to talk about. In last, uh, last week's Sunday school, we talked a little bit about this idea. At least I talked about it. <laughs> so it was significant to me. Um, about how I just, I love when I am approached in scripture by something that surprises me. I, I love to be surprised because, because that's when, when I'm faced with a surprise is when I get the opportunity to learn something, right? That's when God is saying, ha, what you thought you knew, guess what? You, you didn't get it right. But here's what's the truth. And God can, God can teach us through that surprise. I love that. Um, so I was thinking about about times in Scripture, places in Scripture where we see that. Um, and uh, that's what I want to share with you this morning is, is one of those. Um, scripture should surprise us. It should challenge our, our assumptions and our comfort. We may think, I've been reading my Bible for, lo, these many years. It doesn't surprise me because I know what's in there. But be careful. Be careful with that attitude, right? We should know the Bible front and back. That's good. And I don't want to dissuade you from that. But be careful. The Pharisees of Jesus' day knew the Bible very, very well. They could have said the same thing. Oh, nothing can surprise me. I know it all. I've memorized major parts of it. 
But Jesus rebuked them for knowing the words, but completely missing the meaning behind the words that God had intended. So I want to look at one of these passages. Um, uh, it's, about, it's about kind of what God believes is valuable. And I think it's, it's worth paying attention to. It's from Genesis. It's uh, from the story of, of Jacob. And, uh, and we'll get into that in a second. So if you turn with me to Genesis 25, we're going to start at verse 24. And I'm just going to read this little, uh, this little episode that happened. We're talking about Isaac's wife, Rebecca, at first, who's pregnant after being barren for some time. Isaac had prayed for her, and God's answer was twins. But they're not born yet. Yeah. <laughs> we, got some, we got some experience with that in here. Um, Genesis 25, 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom which means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear it to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that teaches us, that shows us a little bit about you and a little bit about us. Uh, Father, teach us today, open our hearts and our minds. Lord, help us to, to be closer to you, to your son, in Jesus' name, amen. So here we are, in this, this seminal passage where Jacob buys the birthright from Esau. This is pretty big. Uh, we hit a major plot point in Sunday school this morning, I say plot point. It is, it's a plot point in the true story of history that God is writing. But this is another major one, right? Jacob is buying the birthright from Esau. And the question I think that, that is in front of us is what do we expect? What do we value here? Um, as we look at this, this is one of the places where I, I feel like it went, it went a different way than me in how it concluded. So Esau, let's look at Esau for a minute. Esau's the man's man, right? He's the man of the field. He's the skillful hunter. He's loved by his dad. Uh, his, his dad loves that he goes out, hunts game, kills game, brings it home, and then he gets to eat, you know, what his son has killed. Jacob is really kind of a mama's boy. He stays in the tents. He cooks with his mom. Esau grabs life by the horns. He goes for what he wants with courage and energy. Jacob schemes and plots. And he quietly strategizes, and he waits patiently for opportunities and then sees his weaknesses. It's a really interesting contrast. I don't want to exaggerate it. These things are straight from Scripture. I've, I've heard preachers exaggerate this before to, uh, 
to a point where uh, it's, it's no longer reverent. And I don't want to have to explain to Jacob when I meet him in heaven. See, in, in the early 20th, first century, it was fashionable for preachers to mock people because it got laughs, right? So uh, that's the, I'm sure you understand, right, Jacob? Yeah, I don't want to have that conversation, um, especially with Esau. Yeah, so uh, it says, you know, I don't think I'm exaggerating this. But, like, the scripture's pretty clear about the personalities of these boys. Um, it tells us what kind of men they were. Isaac loved one. Rebecca loved the other. And these people aren't perfect. Now, that's what we love about scripture. They are real people. Scripture tells the truth, warts and all. So which brother would you like better or respect more, do you think, naturally? Um, I'll just leave that as a, as a rhetorical question. But then we see what happens. Esau comes in from the field. He'd either been working or hunting. I'm not clear which it was. But we presume he, he's been either doing hunting or working. He's exhausted and he's hungry either way. He's been outside. Jacob's been inside cooking. He seems to be prepared for this encounter. And when Esau asks for the stew, Jacob has a ready response. Sell me your birthright now. He knows the weakness, doesn't he? Esau flippantly agrees. Oh, I'm going to die anyway. Might as well sell it. Right? Was he serious? Well, Jacob's serious. Jacob says, okay, swear to me now. Let's close this deal. And he seals the deal. And he gives him the stew, the price of the deal. Jacob, in this moment of Esau's fatigue and hunger at the end of a long day, before he can stop to think clearly, Jacob takes advantage and buys the birthright for a bowl of stew. Who most likely killed the animal that went into that stew? Probably wasn't Jacob. So how do we feel about Jacob? He's lived up to his name. He's a trickster. He's a heel grabber, right? What does God say? Thus Esau despised his birthright. Not a word about Jacob's ethics, about Jacob's trickery, Jacob's plotting and strategizing, about Jacob taking advantage of his brother. Not a word. Thus Esau despised his birthright. It's complete condemnation for, Jake, for Esau. And God honored this agreement. He made sure. He even honored Isaac's blessings given by outright deception later in, a, in another story about Jacob and his deception of his father in cahoots with his mom. Crazy story. But God still honored it. God criticized Esau for not valuing his birthright, which was not only financial, but kind of implied and ended up including the blessing of the promise that had been given to Abraham. So this passing down of the, this ultimate covenant promise from God to, to his people. And the blessing continued and expanded such that God's chosen people would be called by Jacob's name, Israel, and not Abraham or Isaac, and certainly not Esau. So the descendants of Esau, Edom, would be cursed and held in contempt, while the descendants of Jacob, the Israelites, are still around today. They're held up by God. Scripture describes exactly what happened, but the only criticisms for Esau, his, Jacob's softness, his trickery, 
His leveraging his brother's weakness all ignored in this passage. Esau's failure to value the birthright, absolute failure. What can we learn from this? What do we learn from this? It's interesting to be surprised, but how does it change it? How, how should it change us? When we're surprised, what do we do with the surprise? We've got to make an adjustment. I think for me, it's a reminder of what God is seeking in us, that we value, that we value our birthright. And what is that exactly? What's our birthright? Because we aren't Isaac's son. But we need to understand what that is. It's important. We understand that Jesus' blood has paid a debt for our sins. And that trusting him delivers us from God's judgment and destruction. This is a great mercy. This is, this is a gospel message. It's such a great gift of love. But I think that God wants us to understand that salvation isn't the end of the story. As great as it is, it's just the starting point. Our birthright as believers, Christians, people of God, is God himself. Jesus once rebuked the Pharisees saying, this is John 5, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. This was to the Pharisees. What is he saying here? Well, sometimes we use this verse as a rationale for our, our Christ-centered Bible hermeneutic. And uh, that's, a, that's a big word, hermeneutic. Uh, it just means sort of our approach to interpreting Scripture, right? And we, we rightly use this verse in this way. It's, it's correct that we do so. We focus on the fact that the whole Scripture is about Jesus. It informs how we look at Scripture we look for Jesus in every passage. We even have a whole multi-year Sunday school curriculum that is centered around this concept that everything is about Jesus. And so we look for Jesus in every passage, right? It's good. It's true. But I don't think it's Jesus' main point in this passage. He's accusing them of not seeking Jesus himself and not having a love of God. They had some kind of love for Scripture and law. They knew the rules and they were dedicated to following them. And they loved to talk about the philosophy of things. But they didn't actually love God. Consequently, they didn't actually love Jesus when they met him. Like Esau, they despised their birthright. And what a blessing they missed. So could we ever be tempted to devalue our birthright? To, to fail to value what God values? We often focus on salvation and the gift of eternal life. And, and rightly so. It is a great gift. What did Jesus say about this? Eternal life. On the night of the Last Supper, Jesus was praying to the Father in front of his disciples, and he said this from John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him all authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all you whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I'm going to say that again. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And skipping some verses, I'm praying for them. This is still Jesus. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Skipping ahead again, 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. That's a mouthful. But what is Jesus' vision of eternal life from these passages? Uh, if the, the music team could come up, I'll be closing here shortly. Um, what is, what is Jesus' vision of eternal life? It says that Jesus himself said, eternal life is knowing God and knowing his son. Not merely knowing about him, but an amazing relationship between Jesus and the Father, along with those that the Father has presented to, the, to Jesus as his own, all knit together in unity and love, in some mystical way that we won't fully understand now. We will someday, but we can get a taste of it. I've often said that when I preach, I'm, I'm sometimes mostly preaching to myself, and I'm not going to claim to understand all of this. At times, I think I have tasted it. Times I think I've been more like a Pharisee, seeking texts and concepts that I can try to understand or not, but I can always set them aside. I can kind of control texts and, con and concepts. I can set them aside and maintain control. But you can't maintain, maintain control over relationship, especially relationship with God. You don't get that. Jesus is saying that eternal life, our birthright from the new birth, is to know and love God. We can't control that relationship. You treasure it. You embrace it. And you seek to spend time in it. I think we get a hint of where our hearts should be as we read the Psalms of David. There are many Psalms of David, and I could have picked, I could have picked many, many that would illustrate David's heart for God is, the, is the, the model, I think, of what we should be striving for. But in Psalm 42, David said, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? That is David, thirsting, desiring, and that's where we should be.